I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. We have with us today the absolute pleasure of having Dr. Kathleen McInnes with us. Kathleen is a senior fellow at CSIS. She's director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Project, and she is the host of the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, which you can get on the CSIS network and anywhere you get your podcast. Kathleen, so happy to have you on. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. It's just great to chat. So Kathleen, you're an expert on NATO and NATO is all the rage these days. The alliance seems strong. Today, there was news out of Brussels that NATO and the United States will continue to provide Ukraine with the arms that are necessary to continue their battles against Russia. What do you think that signals beyond the obvious? Obviously, the war in Ukraine has profoundly changed the calculations of of NATO and its member states when it comes to what the security challenges are that we as an alliance and Europe needs to contend with. Ukraine was this, I'm going to say marginal issue. You know, the, the alliance was working on things like Afghanistan or Libya and crisis management for so long that, you know, there was discussions with Ukraine and there were signals that there was a looming threat coming from Russia and this this change of mindset, particularly since 2007. That's, by the way, when Putin stood up at the Munich Security Conference and a colleague of mine calls it his launch party for the then new Russian ambition for the world and, and its regional environment. So this meeting of the contact group, this decision to continue to supply arms, the decision to support Ukraine, which is not a NATO member, is a pretty important statement of allied solidarity and a recognition that as of, you know, February 24th, everything's changed. And we're still understanding what that means. We're still trying to get our heads around the second and third order implications of all of this. But so Ukraine was this, it was a discussion for a long time about membership and accession and whether Ukraine should be part of NATO or not, to all of a sudden being the geopolitical center, like the the flashpoint around which so many other bigger questions are hinging. So NATO's statement, NATO's work, the agreements to supply arms to, to Ukraine, the increases in defense spending that we're seeing across Europe are all this interrelated but profound recognition that things are changing and we have to start getting ahead of the curve on on a lot of these issues. You know, that's really a good point. You know, one of the things that NATO countries are struggling with right now, some of them are really hurting over a recession, gas prices, they're all hurting over gas prices. And in the case of France, President Macron is calling for talks and I guess that's part of him signaling that yes, we're going to support Ukraine but we're not going to support Ukraine indefinitely at the expense of our gas prices, our inflation, and our economic security. Is that your read on it? Well, I think it's important to remember that all wars have to stop with some sort of negotiation, right? Like that's There is going to be some sort of discussion at some point. There's a huge amount of daylight between the Russian and Ukrainian positions right now. So I'm not sure what talks are going to get anybody at this point anyway. You know, we talk to Ukrainians and they they want Crimea back, right? Profoundly different. So the extent to which, you know, you're talking about negotiations and, and, and having a negotiated settlement, okay, I'm not sure we're anywhere near there yet. More broadly, I mean, you're, you are 
raising the exact right question and something that I'm watching quite carefully. As this war progresses, as it grinds on, different NATO allies are going to be feeling this in different ways. You know, we are already feeling it at the pumps. The French are feeling it at gas prices. And recall that, like, Americans have never really felt the effects of war, right? We've been involved in wars for 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. But remember that, remember after September 11th, what the signal, it wasn't like buckle down and we're going to go to a wartime economy. It was go to the malls and do some shopping and support the economy that way, right? We haven't really felt the effects of war in the kind of profound ways that we are likely to do so, certainly in recent memory not here in the United States and not across NATO allied capitals. So it's going to be interesting to watch how the different NATO nations absorb these shocks and how the alliance can work together to to underscore solidarity in so doing, right? So definitely one to watch. I'd also note, though, when we talk about NATO, we tend to think about the Article 5 commitment, right? the collective defense, right? An attack on one is an attack on all. And that's a pretty profound statement. Right. That's the thing that comes to mind. Exactly. What most observers don't re- or don't know, um, and this includes a bunch of NATO watchers, is that there's in the Treaty of Washington set up NATO, there's Article 2. And Article 2 is about promoting democracy and democratic institutions and having economic policies that reinforced the security agreements. So basically, the founders of NATO were like, hang on a second, you can't divorce the economic picture from the security picture, especially as they're thinking about reconstructing Europe at the time, right? So that's a dimension of NATO that I would argue is being underutilized, but we got to start paying much more attention to. So what does NATO solidarity look like right now? You have NATO's made up of 30 member states ranging from North America to Eastern Europe. What does political solidarity look like in NATO? That's a great question. And I think there's probably 30 different answers to that question, (laughs) right? I think that there is an ability for the member states to come together and have this this common platform to discuss any number of issues, right? So the eastern states are very concerned with obviously russia to Russia. it's it's on their 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 doorstep of course they're going to that that's going to be their top priority spain france italy they're looking across the mediterranean and violent extremism and instability in north africa they've got big challenges those tend to be more front and center in their strategic calculations than here it, it's natural right we did a study at chatham house on this in, in like 2014 i think and so it's so the different allies have different strategic priorities. That's a given. The question is whether NATO itself can adapt to that. Can it walk and chew gum at the same time? And I think it can. One of the things that the alliance brings to bear on all of this is this amazing international military structure, right? That you have different nations coming together and there's this 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 military structure the command and control networks, all those sorts of things that the nations can come together and rapidly respond to any crisis together, right? Sometimes that happens in NATO. Sometimes it happens outside of NATO. And then NATO chumps in later, like we saw with Libya and Afghanistan. So like a, a, a core group of nations went and did some stuff in Libya and Afghanistan, and then NATO followed on later. That stuff doesn't exist. That stuff isn't possible without all of that backbone, that work that's been going on for 
decades on trying to promote those common procedures, those common networks, and this shared understanding of of how to do things. So what does a strong NATO look like? And is it strong right now? I mean, I think the common thought is, is that this conflict and the United States pulling the allies together has strengthened the alliance. Do you think the alliance is stronger now than it was pre-conflict? I think it is more obviously relevant. I think that there are a number of long-standing challenges like European defense spending have been in some ways addressed, uh, like with Germany increasing its defense spending. But as we look forward and as the conflict grinds on, again, as our domestic economies feel the impacts of this war, the question is going to be to what extent can NATO help facilitate that kind of solidarity? And, and how, how can, it, can it pay attention to the economic side of things? Can it start bringing it together in a way for NATO capitals to, to help make the cases to their publics that this is important work? That this is, this is we're, we're feeling the pinch. But the way we live, the values that we have are under threat right now. I mean, Putin said the other day that if you, as a state, aren't capable of sovereign decisions, well, you're not a, you're not a state. That's a pretty bold vision for Russia and and a pretty damning statement against what we now know is the liberal world order. There's, there's academics quibble with that that term, but that's a pretty profound challenge, right? And that's what's at stake. That's what NATO can can help communicate. And the strength of the alliance will be in doing that, but also being this platform to address the other challenges. Also, like we haven't talked about China. Not yet. <laughs> we, we, we will. Okay. We will. We will. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you, though, and I think this is on the tip of everyone's mind, you know, my European friends tell me that the alliance seems strong, but it's not that strong. And the reason it's not that strong, or one of the reasons it's not that strong is capitals in Europe are looking at the United States and thinking if there is a change in administration in two years, even if there's a change in Congress, but more to the point, if there's a change in administration in two years, they don't know what the United States' commitment to NATO might look like. It's a fair question that's on a lot of people's minds. I'm hearing that in a variety of different quarters as well. Uh, because, you know, the prior administration, the prior president reportedly almost pulled us out of NATO. And it, it was such like a mind-blowing policy position. I was sitting on Capitol Hill at the time. Nobody had any idea what to do about that. Like, wh why would you ever pull out of NATO? Then again, I mean, you, you, you think about some of the debates we've had over NATO for the past, well, actually, since NATO's existed about burden sharing and is, 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 is Europe getting the free ride and, and the U.S. is paying too much in terms of security. And you can, you can start making a case or threading the needle from that conversation to, well, the U.S. is getting an unfair deal. So why are we here anymore? It's not worth it anymore. Yeah. And Donald Trump's basis for threatening to pull out was that they weren't paying their fair share. Right. And so now they've all pledged to pay their fair share and more. So you would think that whether we have a, a change in government or not, change in president or not, as long as they're holding up their end, the United States should still be in, shouldn't it? 
it's going to take shake out in terms of some technical stuff. Like, so there's this question of whether two percent is actually enough. If allies are actually going to be spending it on real capabilities as opposed to you know stuff that's irrelevant. When you frame it in terms of 2% or the actual financial cost of the alliance, you get really quickly into what I would call cost sharing, right? It's a transactional discussion. And when you start thinking about an alliance in terms of dollars and cents, it's a road that goes nowhere fast because at no point is anybody going to really feel like they've gotten their fair share. Right. It's, I mean, that's the nature of a negotiation, you know, like, and a financial transaction. So the extent to which we can pull the discussion out of that sort of cost sharing and look at the, the big burden sharing stuff. We can't do the things we want to do in the world without NATO. We have an ability to rapidly respond to crises in Africa, in the Middle East, because of our relationships in NATO. We get favorable status in trade negotiations with European partners because of the, of the work we're doing with NATO, right? And, and so in terms of looking at that debate, which I agree is going to be coming and it's going to crescendo, the extent to which we can reframe the conversation out of this nickel and diming on defense and, and into this bigger conversation of we got to deal with Russia and China and the Middle East and North Africa and climate change. And, and what's the premier platform with which to do so? It's NATO. So let's value that. Right. So Ukraine's not the only game in town. Correct. Absolutely. Before we talk about China and some of the other challenges that NATO faces, I want to ask you about Finland and Sweden. That's also on the top of everybody's mind. And there's a holdup because of Turkey. Do you think that there's going to be a compromise to be found there? or Most folks that I've talked to in Finland and Sweden have said that they, they're confident that the Turkish concerns are going to be addressed. So it wasn't necessarily surprising to me that Turkey through a spanner in the works, as they would say. Um, what'll be interesting as well is that there are other countries like Hungary that before um, the Swedish and Finnish application and before Turkey raised a stink, there were some folks who were saying that Hungary was going to be a big problem because of Orban's relationship to Putin. So it'll be interesting to see whether that reemerges as an issue as well. It may not. Well, what happens if Hungary opposes due to a relationship with Vladimir Putin? What happens to Hungary? It's a NATO member, right? So the alliance can't take an action unless all 30 agree. So yeah, they can block it. Any na any nation can block it. They'd be blocking it on different grounds. Turkey you yeah. know, claims that there's, they're dealing with yeah, PKK terrorists, which yeah. the United States still has on their yeah. terrorist list. Mm -hmm. So their concerns are being taken seriously. Yeah. Will Orban's concerns be taken seriously or is this just too much of a hypothetical? I think we're at t uh, getting to too many hypotheticals at this point. And there may already be negotiations underway to, to assuage any concerns that Hungary might have on this front. So I don't want to sort of guess or speculate as to what's, what might be going on there. But I'm just saying that I think the, the bigger point is that this isn't a done deal. Sweden and Finland, I think for most NATO nations, most NATO members, they will be welcome additions to the alliance. But yeah, I mean, there are wild cards and it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. So as you mentioned, Ukraine, of course, is not a NATO member. What is NATO's responsibility in your view to Ukraine? That's a great question. So the technical answer is none. 
right? The technical answer is they're not a NATO ally. Therefore, there is no collective defense provision. Article 5 isn't triggered. None of that stuff. What's interesting is that the allies all recognize, however, that what happens in Ukraine is going to have profound implications for NATO members. And that's what's driving the action. So, and, and it's one of the reasons that I think we're seeing varying levels of support amongst NATO members for Ukraine and, and different positions and how this, this all plays out because Ukraine isn't in the alliance itself. So NATO is about to have a summit in, in a few weeks. What, what do you expect to come out of the summit? What I'd be interested to see is, are they going to take on this this question of Russia? Are they going to take it front and center? Are they going to say things like, Russia is a threat to the alliance? Or are they going to sort of weasel word their way out of, that's a weasel word, it's a very technical term, <laughs> um, out of a, a strong declaratory statement? And why that matters is because, you know, when you have that big, strong declaratory statement, you can design forces, you can put bases in places, you can uh, do the planning in different ways you get the political guidance to do so and the allies and, and the international military staff go forth and do the work. So having a strong declaratory statement matters. I And I, I don't know whether the alliance will be able to get there. I'm also looking to see the extent to which the alliance can balance the issues with Ukraine, Russia, with China. And, and you know, again, this is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. When you look at it, you think China is probably not the like that should be high on the list of priorities, right? It's a completely different theater. But obviously, as we know, thinking about things in terms of geography isn't always helpful. China is extremely involved in Europe with Belt and Road and other, you know, technological commercial acquisitions has a footprint in Europe that can be arguably damaging, especially when we think about Article 2. Like we got to have economic policies that aren't messing with each other. And when you have Beijing-linked commercial interests in European economies, that it just gets really complicated really quick. So yeah, th this is what I wanted to ask too, is you know, what is NATO's relationship to other countries in the world like China? Yeah. You know, we're, we're so focused right now on Russia, Ukraine, but of course, NATO has a lot of other concerns as well. Right. So it's, it's, I would say it's got like geographic partnerships and it's got functional considerations, right? So it has partnerships with Japan and Australia. So uh, countries in different parts of the world. And it has those partnerships in order to be able to do things like operations together. So, you know, the Australians were key contributors in Afghanistan. So being able to make sure that the, we can call on Canberra and, you know, that there's working relationships there to be able to do operations and, and, and think about big strategic matters together. That's pretty important. So those, I would say those are the geographic things. The China question is very interesting for NATO because on the one hand, you've got European allies who have interests in the Pacific, like France. You have other countries who are being affected by Beijing's foreign policy, economic policy, economic coercion, those sorts of things, right? And so China is becoming more of a discussion point within NATO because this the member states recognize we've got this powerful platform to figure out our strategies together and to share like to come to some sort of 
maybe not full consensus on on what's happening, but much further along than than we would be without it. And and so be able to look at what's happening with China and think through together what the alliance ought to be able to do. And and I think there's a big question there, right? Is it NATO allies ought to focus their activities on Russia and shoring up activities in Europe so that they can tackle the Russia challenge with less U.S. assistance? Or should they be more involved in the Indo-Pacific? And how, what does that mean for resource constraints and all the other things? So there's a big, big questions out there right now. Kathleen, thank you so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter about this complex set of issues. Can't wait to have you back to talk about more when we learn more about what's going on with NATO and the United States. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. It is so fascinating to watch this one. Sure is. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 